But it's good to be with all of you today and to look back at God's Word this afternoon. Um, coming up here, I noticed on my temperature gauge on my truck on the outside temperature said 100. So I don't know if that was just because of the heat from the road, but it sure felt like it when I got out of that truck that it was pretty warm. And I have to remind myself that we're in July now, and uh, that's usually the case for South Carolina, especially here uh, in this area. It gets warm. But uh, I hope you plan to have a good fourth uh, with your family and friends and uh, enjoy that time together as we often do. Mark reminded me that, you know, we do have a special gift from God because we are free to meet together here and we don't have any threat on our lives. Uh, I have yet to hear of anyone who's had their home burned for coming to church or perhaps maybe assaulted for being at church or had their children kidnapped for being at church. And yet there are so many throughout the world today that don't have the freedom that we do, nor do they have the security that we do to meet together and to worship. And one of the things we're talking about today is how to get prepared for the persecution that's coming. We set a Sunday aside at our church this morning to talk about the persecuted church, to remind ourselves to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are under intense persecution for their faith. And I think it's easy for us as believers here in America to kind of get comfortable where we are. We come to a building that's air-conditioned. We usually ride in a car that has the same. We don't have as near the problems that so many do throughout the world. I remember whenever I had my first trip to Kenya to check on our orphanage and our pastor school in that area that I was struck by the uh, poverty in that area, that there were still people living in what we would deem straw huts, uh, mud structures with straw on top. And uh, what I did notice, which was really interesting, is that most of the population in Kenya had cell phones. They might not have air conditioning or a framed home, but they'll have a cell phone. And one of the most popular buildings, if you ever have a chance to see any videos of that area, one of the most popular buildings in that area is usually green, very bright green, and it is always the place to buy more data for your cell phone. That's interesting to think about, that the priority in that area would be to have cell phone and data. That can go in a good way or a bad way. It opens the door for false teaching, which is being combated in that area because of the rise of um, Islam in Kenya and also the uh, continuing escalation of charismatic doctrines that have infiltrated that area. So it might open the door for good doctrine, but it opens the door for the bad stuff too. And it makes it difficult. It really does, especially when you're doing a, a pastor school. But even in that area, there's a rise of persecution. Uh, the Sudans, uh, we have a brother that we have been very closely linked to. His name's Noel. And uh, he is a brother who literally almost lost his life for being a pastor in South Sudan. He was eventually beat so bad uh, that he was barely alive. They threw him out of the vehicle, and left him on the side of the road to die. And um, anyway, by God's grace, uh, through a brother over there, he was able to nurse him back to health and to help him get better. He still has some health problems, but we're putting him through seminary in Nairobi and getting him trained to be a pastor in Kenya. 
And, uh, you know, when I was able to sit there with him in a room and talk to him and listen to him and him show me the scars on his body from almost being beat to death, and all he was doing was just being a pastor. That's all he was doing. He wasn't trying to confront the culture. He wasn't trying to speak up against Islam. He was just trying to be a pastor, and he was under enormous attack for being that pastor in that area. So listen, I'll just be straight with you. We do not want to forget our brothers and sisters, part of the body of Christ and the family of God that are suffering for the name of Christ while we sit comfortably here in America. But let me just take your attention now for a few moments this afternoon to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and following. I'm going to read this text. I'm not going to deal with all of this text. I just want to highlight a few of them. But uh, let me just read this for our hearing this afternoon. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now there is no doubt that there is an escalation of hostility uh, toward Christians in the last decade here in the United States. More and more are beginning to experience some form of persecution when it comes to naming Christ as their Savior. But worldwide, there have been over 340 million Christians who have been experiencing intense persecution since the year 2020. Over 5,000 were killed for their faith, for identifying as a believer. Open Doors tells us that since 2019, that population of people who have been persecuted has grown as much as 70 million more. More Christians, according to what I read, have died for their faith in the last hundred years than have died for their faith the entire history of the church combined. Newsweek reported in January 2018, the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history. If you followed some of the events going on in China, you will note that they have been systematically destroying buildings and Christian church buildings specifically and anything related to Christianity. As of to date, 50,000 Christians who worshipped have been displaced from their church facilities. In 2017 alone, the killings of Christians in Nigeria increased 62%. That's incredible. Nigeria, according to one author, is the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. It is stated by Nina Shia, director of the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom. She says, and I quote, more Christians have been targeted and slaughtered by extremists in Nigeria than in the entire Middle Eastern area. According to the report, 52,000 plus Nigerian Christians have been brutally murdered. 
by the hands of Islamic militants. And the same period of time, 18,000 Christian churches and 2,200 Christian schools were set ablaze. By September 2020, a nonpartisan watchdog group entitled Genocide Watch declared a genocide emergency in Nigeria. They said that Nigeria was at an extinction-level event. This article went on to say that within the 11-month period, 5,113 people were killed. Since 2015, they found some 11,500 Christians that had been killed in Nigeria, averaging about 2,300 a year, which is about one new Christian martyr for every four hours. Now, that's pretty bad. In fact, it hasn't changed much in Nigeria, and they say that in the first few months of 2023, over 1,000 Christians have been killed. One person pointed out in our church today that the population of people who have been killed in Nigeria in just the year 2020 would be the entire population of what we call in our area, Batesburg-Leesville, which is over 5,000 people. Now here at home, we don't have that kind of problem yet. You don't have to worry about your house being burned if you come to church. You don't have to worry about someone assaulting your wife or your children because you named the name of Christ. And as far as I know, I haven't found many in America that have been killed for naming the name of Christ in America. But we benefit from a country that has been largely based upon and built upon a Christian, a Judeo-Christian value system or a biblical worldview. In fact, if you have ever been to Washington, D.C. and noticed the carvings on the buildings, you will notice many times that a lot of the same biblical principles and statements of our faith are carved into the rock of the buildings. But very few of them now accept them believe them or practice them at all they are in many ways wholly ignored in Washington our country used to be what we could call and consider a Christian nation especially at its founding with the Puritans but we have long since left that worldview it's just not here anymore in fact we could consider America now a fully pagan culture where there are idolaters of self and haters of God and his Christ. John MacArthur said we are now living in a pre-Christian culture and what he meant by that is, is it is as if the gospel has never been here before. This has created a perfect environment for the rise of persecution here in the United States and we are frankly ripe for it to take the biblical stand anymore that you and I would believe would be standing against the culture would be standing against the norms of the culture in which we live and for now you have to realize most in our culture could care less that you believe in God they don't care if you believe in Jesus Christ they don't care if you believe the Bible is the word of God they could care less if you attend church and have 15 Bibles on your shelves at home. They really don't even care if you attend Bible conferences 
or attend a vacation Bible school. They don't mind if you give your money to the church or even to the seminaries. And they don't even mind if you send a hundred missionaries overseas to preach the gospel. What they don't want is for you to tell them how to live. They don't want you to say anything about the biblical ethic that you and I believe. They don't want you to force them to drink the Kool-Aid of your God. You're fine as long as you do what you want to do. Just don't push your morality down my throat. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is perverted. Don't tell me that what I'm doing is something bad or immoral. And nowadays, it's kind of interesting the way things have turned. Whereas years ago, we used to think that the immoral drives of our culture and where it was headed was going to destroy the country, and I'll still agree with that. But the culture has turned it around. And what they've done is this. They've made you and I the problem. That we're the extremist, and we're the enemy, and we're the reasons why that the country is going to be destroyed. It's because you and I are these weird people who believe the Bible and actually want to live what God's word says, we are the moral Bible thumpers. And we have been painted by many to be the enemy of the United States. This is actually being said over and over again that the Christian community are the problem. Think about some of the moral issues that you and I stand on. And these are just some of the hot button issues that many of us are familiar with. One would be obviously abortion. We believe that life begins at conception, right? We believe that that baby in the womb is created in the image of God and that it is murder if you kill that child. And yet because we believe that, we are being painted as haters of women's rights and that we really want to destroy health care for women. And that our desire is that we drive all of these women into poverty because we're going to make them have their babies. That's the way it's presented. Homosexuality is another one. And it's because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that homosexuality is indeed a sin against God and a perversion of his ordained order. We are painted now as homophobic. And haters of people who just want to have a relationship and love one another. And then there's another one that many don't think of. This arousing problem in the evangelical world and the church world. And that is women preachers. Women preachers. You say, well, how in the world does that even affect us? How are we going to be persecuted because of that? Well, you have to understand that because a church like this would affirm that the office of elder and pastor is specifically designated for men, and that means they're male and gender, just to be sure, that it must be filled biblically by qualified men who can hold that office. We are presented, listen to this, within the church, talking about the wide, broad church, as hateful toward women's rights to serve God. Women should be able to do whatever they want to do to serve God and 
So as a result of that, if we don't allow for that, then we are not allowing people to really love and serve God. And so it is presented that those who believe this and affirm this are old school, archaic, patriarchal, and misogynistic. We want to keep women where they belong, is the way it said. We want to keep them barefoot and pregnant, baking bread. And that's it. That's the way it's presented. And so as a result of that, the rhetoric, the speech, the words that are used are inflaming people's emotions against believers. What is also interesting about all of this is that the timing seems to be just about right. We've had the internet for about two decades now. And as a result of that, we've had the advent of social media, which I would love to see go away. It's never going to go away now. But as a result of the internet, more and more people are willing to get on there and share their opinions and how much they hate certain things anonymously. And they can say all these things that they believe that are against biblical morality and Christianity and just brew up the hatred and the heat even more. I've noticed, and I don't know if you have, but on some social media accounts, that if you have someone take a stand for a particular moral issue that's biblical, all you have to do is take a moment and just read the comments. And you will be amazed, shocked, uh, embarrassed at just how much vitriolic hatred there is for what you and I consider dear and important. If words could kill, social media would have killed many Christians already. What used to be a few comments made among unbelievers regarding the Christian worldview has now become a Niagara Falls of hate speech. Recent events have really helped us see some of this escalate. One of them you may have seen in the news even again. The recent events surrounding the reality TV show, 19 Kids and Counting, which was on the TLC uh, channel. It ran for nearly 10 years and was the number one show. If you're not aware of that, it basically was a reality show following behind the Duggar family that had many children. They were considered a conservative Christian family that promoted Christian values they had controversy, no doubt, and failures within their family and problems that they're having to work through. They have some issues with some of their followings of Bill Gothard and the biblical institutes, which creates a great deal of legalism in their family. But I'm not concerned about any of that. that that's something that that family is going to have to work through, and many who are involved in that will have to work through. My concern is this, how all of this is being painted because what you may not understand is that what's happening in the background, and all you have to do is just do a quick search of this, and this is literally everywhere. And everybody has their say and their comments on why this family did this and why this family did that. Under attack is all and many of the biblical values that you would hold. And they are telling us that these people, these kinds of people, these Christian 
people, and particularly, if you listen carefully, these homeschooling people. They are the enemy. They're producing a bunch of people, listen to this, to take over. That's the way it's being presented. So the idea is, is that the more children you have and the more you raise them in your biblically indoctrinated context of homeschooling, that your primary goal of all of this is to take over the country. Now, whether that's the case among some families, I'm not sure. Some might even have that intention. But the point is this, is that whenever you begin to have that presented in the media, particularly the liberal godless media, is presented as if you and I are the reason why this country is going to be destroyed. We indeed become the enemy of the country. And also, whenever it comes to this, they are often talking about, within this context, of how these families who are growing by many children and teaching them their Christian values, the word is indoctrination, that's the word that is used, that as a result of that, what we're going to have is more and more of these families are going to begin to take over and they're going to rule. Now, listen, most of these out there who could care less about our Christian values and what we believe really don't care what you believe until you tell them you want to rule. You want to take over. Or even if it's just presented that way, that you want to rule or take over. There's another interesting one that's coming about, and this has happened in the last probably few months, as far as its publicity is concerned. This one concerns me more than the whole issue with the Duggar family. It's the discussion about Christian nationalism. Now, my concern here is not what you believe about that or what you define that as or where you think this may go, but what should concern you it's how you, as an evangelical believer, are being lumped into a large political group among many people who do not affirm what you affirm and do not believe what you believe. I'll give you an example, and this is a confession. I was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I did not go in the Capitol. However, my cell phone got awfully close to it but I did not have any FBI agents show up on my front door. We were there for another reason. We were there to witness and to share the gospel, and that's what we did. We had no idea what was about to take place, but what I did notice is this. As we got closer to the Capitol and all the people came toward the Capitol, and they represented MAGA, they represented the conservative group, and it was absolutely bizarre. There were so many people there that supposedly represented Christianity and represented what we would consider a biblical worldview that were so far off base that I didn't want to be anywhere close to them at all. And my point is, is that this whole talk about Christian nationalism is being taken over by a group of people who have a whole total different set of interests in mind. 
They're not looking at it from a post-millennial viewpoint, or they're not looking at it even from a biblical viewpoint. They're just looking at it as a political means by which they can take over the country. You say, well, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with having a Christian nation? Absolutely nothing. In fact, I would love to have a Christian nation, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to have a nation that you don't have to worry about seeing pride parades in the middle of the downtown area? Wouldn't you like to have a country that, it, that believed what the Bible said and used the word of God as the basis for its law and its virtue and its justice? Of course, all of us would. But the way this is being presented is, is that these Christian nationalists, which include all of that political group and all of us, are the ones who are trying to take over and destroy the country. Now, there's a reason for all of this. The pagan elites see a threat to their rulership. And if you think they're going to take this lying down and do nothing about it, you're very naive. They're not going to. In fact, I'm kind of concerned that a lot of this talk among even Reformed brothers is being put out there online. And the reason why is because those who do not like us are listening. And when you say certain things about what you believe should be incorporated in a national scene, biblically speaking, these things can be taken and twisted in such a way that it can be turned against us. I think there needs to be some wisdom given to this of how we discuss such things, especially whenever those who desire to destroy us are actually listening to our words to twist them. Now, as I told you before, I don't believe a lot of this persecution that's going to come our way is going to come in a physical, violent way, although it can. It can show itself that way. But predominantly, that's not the way it's going to come in America. We're not going to have people coming to our house trying to burn it down or to kill us, at least for now. But the primary way it's going to come is your wallet. It's going to come in your financial world. It's going to come in such a way that you literally have no control over it whatsoever. And I've found out even in the last few years, the last couple of decades especially, that if you want to really affect people, if you want to get their attention, if you want to make them move, if you want to get votes, affect their wallet. Start talking about their wallet. You remember years ago, one of the politicians says, it's the economy, stupid, right? The whole point was, listen, all this other talk about morality and abortion and homosexuality and marriage and all of this other talk, that doesn't matter at all. It's the economy. It's our money. And sadly, I have to say that most of the American Christian community are just as materialistic as the rest of the world is, as far as America is concerned. So whenever we find our own financial world being affected, then we get upset with that too. And we don't like that. And we don't like people messing with our money. And we don't like this instability that we see with our jobs being at risk because of what we may believe. We saw that in the last couple of years with COVID, did we not? How your jobs, many of your jobs, were threatened because of your own personal belief to take your health care personally. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. In fact, did you know that the Bible talks about that there's coming a future time when the man of sin, the Antichrist, will come and he's going to use this very means 
of financial deprivation to find out who you are? In other words, it's one thing to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, right? But when things get tough, you kind of keep quiet, don't say anything, don't risk it, don't speak up. But there's coming a time where there will be no way out of this. There won't be the opportunity just to keep your mouth shut because you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is. And you're going to have to take a stand. And the stand is going to be, am I going to follow Antichrist or am I going to follow Christ? Am I willing to be persecuted and lose everything I have or am I going to follow Antichrist? Turn to Revelation 13 just for a moment. Revelation chapter 13. I don't have time to expound this, obviously, with what I'm talking about today, but I want to show you something. This is probably one of the most amazing verses in all of the scripture. Revelation 13 discusses two beasts. One comes out of the sea, one comes out of the earth. One is what we would consider the Antichrist or the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. That's the first beast. The second one is the false prophet, who is the cohort, the sidekick, the partner in crime with the Antichrist. But notice Revelation 13, 7. Revelation 13, 7. It says, it was granted to him, that is the Antichrist. And by the way, this granting here comes from God. This is God's providential rule, sovereign rule. He is granting for a time for the church and the people of God to be persecuted. Revelation 13, 7. It was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Then it says, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. I believe this to be a worldwide event, not a local Roman Empire event, not a local Palestinian event, but this is a worldwide event where the Antichrist has been granted by God sovereignly to have war against the saints and to overcome them by killing them and persecuting them. And it says that authority was given to him over every tribe, over every language, and over every nation. Now in chapter 13, verse 11, it introduces us to his partner. We call him the false prophet. He's called the beast or the other beast here who rises up out of the earth. There's a lot of imagery here, just so you understand. I'm sure you do. A lot of symbolism here, but it is talking about a real person who comes on the scene, who exercises just as much authority as the first beast, the Antichrist. And according to verse 12, it says, as he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, to worship the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs, that is the false prophet does, he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down out of heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. In other words, the false prophet is going to come with, listen to this, real miracles, real signs, real wonders. He's going to deceive multitudes of people to worship and to follow after the Antichrist. But there's going to be one definite, decisive means by which he separates the saints of God 
and the world of unbelievers. And it's found in verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And here's the point, verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, what he's talking about here is the implementation of something that's going to be so universal and so capable that if you do not identify with the Antichrist, you will not be able to buy anything or sell anything. In other words, your entire world of commerce is over. No more trips to the Walmart if you go. No more trips to the grocery store or the restaurant. No more purchasing of cars or homes. No more college or anything like that. All of those things are gone. You cannot buy or sell. You have no means at all to exist. You say, well, now that sounds awfully science fiction. Surely that can't happen. Well... It is. It's actually starting now. There's some stuff in the works. You may have heard of it called digital currency. Now that may not alarm you much right now, but it will when it finally gets enacted and we all have digital currency. And what that means is this, you'll no longer have dollars in your pocket. You won't need a wallet anymore to carry any cash or a purse to carry any cash. You might need a digital card, maybe, or something even different than that. You won't need quarters and dimes and nickels and pennies anymore. That's all over. That's going away. They've been talking about this for some time. Books, that is checkbooks and banks that you're used to seeing on the sides of the street that you would go into and talk to a teller or sit down with a loan officer those will all be gone. It'll all be digital. It'll all be in a computer. It will not have anything to do with a physical, physical money. In fact, I read this past week from Forbes magazine. I don't normally read that because it's way above my pay grade. But I did read an article in it regarding digital currency. Just so you understand what's going on here with this. It says this, digital currency is any currency that's available exclusively in electronic form. Electronic versions of currency already dominate most countries' financial systems. What differentiates digital currency from the electronic currency is that in most Americans' bank accounts, that electronic currency means that you can go to an ATM and change that electronic number to physical cash. You can go withdraw a couple of hundred dollars and have it in your hand. Digital currency will change all of that. You won't have that anymore. You won't have cash anymore. You will only have a number on your smartphone or on your computer screen that will tell you. And all of the transactions will be all in digital form. Now, that may not be a problem. In fact, you might think, well, that's very convenient. No one can steal what I have because I don't carry any cash anymore. Well, there's a lot of other problems that come along with that. Is what that means is there's going to be one central place where all of these digital currencies are under the control of somebody. 
And all you have to do is have someone who's in authority who has the right to do so or the ability to do so to push the right buttons and he can shut you down. You won't be able to buy anything. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. There's times whenever even banks have problems and they'll tell you, you'll go up to the ATM and says you can't get anything right now. Or there's been times whenever they've slowed the cash from coming out of a bank. So there won't be a bank run on it. Well, by the time this is enacted, you don't have to worry about any of that. There'll be those that control your money and determine whether or not you get any of it whenever you want it in the form of a digital currency. And I believe that because of the way that's going to be eventually formatted, whether it's in the form of a credit card or some kind of card or even some kind of identification, that eventually it's going to have to be made in some form that cannot be detached from you. They're already doing this in Europe where they're talking about implementing means by which you make transactions through your hand. There is, uh, let's see, what is Aldi's? Yeah, Aldi's now in Germany, I believe it is. Whenever you go in there, it automatically reads your face. And if it reads your face and you are who you say you are, the gate will open and you can go in and shop. But if you claim to be somebody else and your face doesn't match, well, guess what? You don't get entrance. So these things are beginning right now, and we have all of the things in place to see it happen electronically, computer-wise. No doubt about that. But there's going to be ways in which they are able to squeeze you even more and more when it comes to this use of currency. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but years ago, the only thing that you really had to be concerned about was your credit score. Whenever you wanted to go purchase a car or buy a home, you had to have your credit check. And if you were a faithful person to pay your bills and you paid on time, you had a high credit score. Usually you could get a low interest rate. You could get the loan that you need and you could go ahead and purchase your car or your home. Well, that's one thing that's still enacted, but there's another thing coming. It's called the ESG score. Now, the ESG score is very interesting and it's very suited for our time, especially in the culture we live in. The ESG score primarily right now is used for businesses. And there's a rating from 0 to 100. And if you're at 100, then you're in good shape. If you're below that, you have a low ESG score. That means that you may not get the available funds that you need to run your business. You may not be able to take out a revolving loan. You may not have partnerships with other companies. There may be people who don't want to participate with you because you have a low ESG score. Now, don't confuse ESG with EKG. Hopefully everyone has an EKG score that's good. But the ESG stands for environment, social, or social justice, and governance. You say, how does that affect a company? Well, take, for instance, a company that produces paint. Maybe it just makes paint all the time. Well, if it's not compliant with all the regulations that affect the climate in its manufacturing of paint, then it can have a lower score. And then if it decides, well, we're not going to hire transgender people, well, guess what? Your social score just dropped. If you don't conform to the critical race theory approach or social justice means, then your score just dropped. Or perhaps maybe in your governance of your company that you don't hire everybody indiscriminately, you have a certain standard, or whatever, maybe you say that you would rather have men do this particular job or women do this particular job, but instead 
you don't do that, you have to be able to hire men, women, and all the other uh, supposed genders that are out there. Well, if you do that, your score may be up, but if you don't do that, your score could go down. Now, the point is, is that companies that are already falling in line with this are making sure that they line up as much as possible with the E and the S and the G so that they can have the most available cash to them to work their businesses. Well, this is also coming not only to the businesses, but it's coming to you. It'll be in a home near you very soon. You'll have one of those scores. And it's going to depend on how you live your life as to whether or not you're going to have available cash or the availability to get out a loan or how what your interest rate will be or all the other things that these institutions who control your digital currency will be able to determine whether you get. For instance, if you are a person that doesn't necessarily believe in climate change and you are one who cares nothing about having a combustion engine, and maybe you have one of those big, nice V8 engines that you're running your truck or your car around in, and you're burning gas all the time and fossil fuels and polluting the atmosphere. Well, guess what? Your score is going to drop. Or maybe if you're one who takes care to mow your grass and you decide to use a combustion gas engine instead of an electric lawnmower, well, you're going to have a lower score also. And not only that, believe it or not, I'm not making this up, but if you eat steak and because these cows these these cows i mean they cause so much problem to our atmosphere every time they belch and do other things i won't discuss when they do that it causes problems with the atmosphere you know it's amazing that god didn't know that he couldn't figure that out whenever he created all these cows and also the same is the case for chickens and pigs and all of this other stuff, that if you have any desire for all of that, your score is going to be lower. I am not kidding you. This is where this stuff goes. And then you talk about the social score, the social score, social justice, critical race, how you interact with all of that in your life as a person. Governance can affect also in your own home, how you run your house. All of those things are going to be affecting you and your score, and you're not going to have the kind of available monies that you thought you had they're going to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and the more that i've talked to conservative believers i personally found that most of the people who really understand the word of god and understand what the bible says are not so willing to line up with the esg scores in fact uh, you do realize that our culture especially our leaders and politicians really believe we're in serious trouble. At least they say they believe it. This world, did you realize, is about to end very soon? Did you know that? It's coming to an end. According to the 2021 Glasgow, Scotland Climate Change Conference, where 120 world leaders plus 25,000 representatives met together to discuss the disaster, the impending disaster of climate change. According to President, former President Barack Obama, he said the world has to step up. It has to step up now. When it comes to the climate, time really is running out. And then the professional yeller, Greta Thunberg, who demanded that the United Nations declare system-wide climate emergency and they should force all the countries to take action. And the press climbed on board, 
with the Chicken Little-esque problem, saying the sky is literally falling, and said that there should be $100 billion given to finance research to stop climate change. Paul Behrens, professor of environmental change, told Politico that, quote, the only fact about the future I can declare with certainty is that the world as we know it is coming to an end. Now, if he'll come to our church, I'll tell him how it's going to come to an end, and I'll tell him who's going to burn it up. I know who's going to do it all, and it's not the cows or your lawnmower or your car. And by the way, it took 118 private jets to get all those big wigs there at the conference in Scotland. They burned thousands of gallons of jet fuel, emitting tons, thousands of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Nothing to see there, just look away. Now, they've been telling us for some time that this problem is going to happen. In 1972, the UN Environmental Protection said that uh, we have 10 years left. That was in 1972. In 1982, the head of the UN Environmental Program stated in the New York Times that if the nations of the world continue in their cultural policies, they will face by the year 2000 an environmental catastrophe irreversible as much as a nuclear holocaust. In 1989, the senior UN environmental official told Associated Press we have to fix the climate change by 1999 or the climate change is beyond human control. Global disaster will happen and will wipe nations off the earth. 1990, still trying to get it right, the head of the UN Environmental Program said we must fix climate change by 1995. Well, we will not win this climate struggle in the near future. In 2004, the Guardian newspaper reported that George W. Bush said that climate change would destroy the world. Quoting the Pentagon, he said, major European cities will be sunk beneath the rising seas. Britain will be plunged into a Siberian climate by 2020. Nuclear conflict will happen, mega droughts, famines, and you'll have no access to bread. Rioting will erupt across the world, but then no later than 2007, to save the day, the head of the UN Climate Panel said, if there's no action by 2012, it's too late. Well, it's 2023. Seems like we're doing okay. Just one other note about that, just in case you want to really be helpful. According to one article, research shows that if everyone went vegetarian for one day per week, we would save 100 billion gallons of water and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by 1.2 million tons of carbon dioxide. So the next time you go out to eat, order broccoli only. We're in trouble, right? You think this is just silly? Well, much of it is. But you have to understand this stuff is being used for a reason. It's being used to eventually squeeze everybody into their mold. And if you don't line up with all that they say, I grant you, you're going to be one of the targets. And that's exactly where it's going today. As Christians, like I told you, it's not going to be, oh, you believe in Jesus, or oh, you believe Jesus is really, truly God, or you believe in the virgin birth. That won't even be close to the issue. 
It's going to be whether or not you line up with their political agenda or not, whether you affirm their world of morality or not, whether you affirm what they believe to be true. I actually heard someone coming up here this afternoon, and I just, I just caught it. I was listening to a little documentary, and this person said, now this person wants to share her truth. I said, her truth? I mean, there's only truth. There's not my truth and your truth, but that's where so many are today. And this culture, though, although it believes in ambiguity and it believes there is no absolutes and it does believe in relevance of everything and relativity as far as that is concerned, it's going to tell you that if you don't affirm what we believe about morality, if you don't agree with what we believe about morality, you're going to be squeezed so hard financially, you're not going to be able to exist. And that's coming, whether it comes before the emergence of a man that we call the Antichrist, the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness, or whether it shows up in a very clear form whenever he comes on the scene. But let me close out with just a few things about how to, how to prepare for this kind of upcoming persecution. And I think it's important for us to understand this, because as believers, you need to understand something. It is coming. It's not a matter of maybe or if it is coming it's coming for you it's coming for your family i fully expect that probably very soon there's going to be some severe determined directed attacks on homeschooling and homeschoolers and that's going to come your way more and more of you uh, people who work in the uh the world uh outside of christian Jobs or whatever people were Christians are are going to find themselves squeezed more and more to line up with the social agendas. We have a number of men in our church that are working in some areas and they already have that. It comes constantly over their emails for them to line up with. Well, let me just begin by talking about this for a moment. Look at the chapter with me. Uh, this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. I just want to look at this and just a couple other verses here about this. And that is this. What does Peter say? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Now that's in the context of him asking a rhetorical question. Would you really suffer for doing good? You wouldn't expect to suffer for doing good, would you? You and I would believe that if we do good and we do good things that everybody would love us and praise us and care for us and support us. But you do need to understand that the person that did the greatest good was murdered. The one who did the greatest good was killed. And that's Jesus Christ. He nearly banished sickness from the area he lived. He fed thousands of people at given times. He, he went around giving truth about salvation and forgiveness of sins. He did the greatest good, yet he was killed. And so to assume for a moment that just because you as a believer do good, that you're going to be exempt from persecution might be a little bit naive. And that's Peter's point. But then he says this in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Now, most of us probably would not identify persecution and suffering with the word blessed. In fact, we probably would not have that in our mind at all. We wouldn't think that the word blessed would be associated with suffering or, or persecution at all because the word blessed or blessed 
often is translated and understood as happy or joyful or something like that, especially when it comes to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and following when we have the Beatitudes. But it does mean more than that, and on occasions it means much more than that, and primarily what Peter has in mind here is that it means highly privileged. Not that you're going to be persecuted and you're going to go through all kinds of suffering for the name of Christ and righteousness, and as a result of that, you're just going to walk around with this tremendous bubbly joy on your face because you just lost your family. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that you actually will be blessed in the sense that you are considered highly privileged. You're a blessed one. You're one that actually has a relationship with God and you're considered worthy by God to suffer like his son, Jesus. So the first thing that you need to remind yourself of when you're headed into this is that Suffering and persecution is not something to be avoided necessarily. There may be times you would do that, but just because it happens doesn't mean you have to run from it. But you do need to understand that you are considered by God in his sovereign pleasure to be highly privileged. Highly privileged. You are blessed. That's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. You're blessed. And by the way, whenever he talks about the word good in the previous verse, he's not talking about good and righteousness in the same way. Uh, the Salvation Army can do good things. The Mormon Church can do good things. The Roman Catholic Church can do good things. Lost people do good things. But only believers, those who know Jesus Christ, can truly do righteous things because you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do those things and you're following the righteous standards of God. So in this text, whenever he talks about in verse 14, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, he's making a distinction from just suffering from just being a good guy. I just helped a person who was in need and I'm a good person. Now that's not what he's talking about. The one who does not only good but does righteous things that are specifically attributed to the righteousness of God and his word. He says if you suffer for that, you are highly privileged. There's a second thing you need to keep in mind. Remember who you are to fear. Obviously, one verse that comes to your mind, I'm sure, is what Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We would all agree that the Bible teaches us that we should fear God and not man, right? That's what the Bible teaches. But here in this text, if you'll look at it with me again now in verse 14, Peter says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. This is a very interesting a phrase that Peter gives us, the New American Standard renders it this way, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now, the literal rendering of the Greek text, listen to this carefully, is the fear of them don't fear. The fear of them don't fear. And so scholars throughout the years have looked at this text and tried to understand how do we translate this to make it understandable. As I just read from the New American Standard, they translate that, do not fear their intimidation. And the whole focus is on what they can do to you 
what they may intimidate you with, what they may accuse you of, what they may threaten you with, don't fear that, fear God. But I don't believe that's what he's talking about. Because the way it literally reads is, the fear of them do not fear. Well, what is it that they fear? What is it that the lost people fear? What is it that they fear most? Death. They don't want to die. You should have clearly seen that throughout the COVID years, how many people were so scared to death, literally, about contacting, or contracting, rather, COVID. And then you have all the people today who desire not to die. They'll do everything they possibly can. And even after they're dead, they'll freeze their bodies in hopes that maybe in the future someone's going to be able to resurrect their bodies and they'll continue to live. They'll spend millions of dollars doing that. But overall, the lost have this great, fear of death. They don't want to die because after all, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in Christ and you have no future hope, this is it. And whenever you die, it's over. It's done. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. So what Peter is telling us is this, don't fear what they fear. What do they fear? They fear death. You don't fear death. Don't fear death. Don't worry about the persecution coming your way and don't let the fear of death that they fear keep you from standing for Christ. Now, this is something we all need to learn. We all need to familiarize ourselves with this. Because there are coming times in our lives, if not ours, especially our children's lives, where there's going to be real threats on their lives. Real threats on their lives. And Christians should not be controlled by the fear of death. We, above all people, should have the hope that is in us in Christ. We should be those that, as the Apostle Paul talked about, he eagerly looked forward to the return of Christ and eagerly looked forward to his death. He said, it was much better for me to go and depart and go and be with Christ than to be with you. He looked forward to that. In first, or rather 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul said, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Job had the same mindset. He said, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Why have fear of death when all that is is the gateway to heaven? That's the gateway to eternity. That's the gateway to all that God has promised to us. We get so distracted about what's going on here and what happens here, and we focus here, and we think about this is it, and we forget that this is only the way out of here. Luke 23, 43, Jesus was talking to the thief who repented on the cross. And what did he tell him that day? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not that you'll die and go off into purgatory for a thousand years. Not that you'll die and go out of existence and be annihilated. No, when you die in that moment, in that instant, you're consciously aware that you're in the presence of God in paradise. Death should never be feared by the believer. So we should never fear what they fear. They fear death we should not fear. It even tells us not to be troubled. And that word has the idea of being agitated, stirred up. Uh, don't get upset. Don't let it bother you that they are attacking you or threatening you or causing you trouble. So, first of all, remind yourself that you're blessed, highly privileged to be a one who is called to suffer for Christ. Two, remember who you are to fear. Fear God. Don't fear what they fear. That is death. And then third, reset the Lord in your hearts. This is like a refocus, all right? Look at verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does he mean by sanctify? It doesn't mean make God holy. That's the word sanctify, to make holy. It means to set apart. But it doesn't mean to make God holy. You can't make God holy. God is already holy. 
To set him apart means to consecrate him, to make him the focus of your life, to make Christ the means and the focus and the center of your life for adoration, exaltation, and worship. In other words, the first thought to come to your mind when you wake up and the last thought to go through your mind before you go to sleep is Christ. When you go through life and you encounter the problems of life, how can I honor Christ? How can I be joyful in the midst of this for Christ? How can I be obedient to him and follow his word? Sanctify Christ in your heart. Set him apart. Make him number one in your life in all things. And whenever you think that way, whenever you endure the persecution that will come your way, you will be better prepared to endure it as you focus in on your Lord who has given his all for you. And then, of course, there's one last one, and that is be ready to defend your faith. Be ready to defend your faith. I know that most of you here today are uh, devoted Bible readers, and you listen to sermons, and you read scholarship, and you read commentaries, and you study the scriptures. And that's very good, and I would encourage you to do that, and also encourage you to teach your children to do that, because they're going to need it just as much as you will. But you need to be ready to give a defense for your faith. And the word defense is apologia, means to give an apologetic to defend your faith. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Why do you have the hope that is in you that is the gospel? What makes you different than the guy down the road who has a fear of death and you don't have a fear of death? Why is Jesus the Savior of the world and the only Savior of the world? Why is it that we love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why do we follow him and be obedient to him no matter what the cost? Because frankly, folks, the world is a large population of people who have no hope. No hope. You know, I was talking to a Roman Catholic the other day and asked him, well, do you believe you're, I asked him, do you believe you're going to go to heaven when you die? He says, I don't know. I don't know. He has no way to know. I mean, you don't know if you've done enough merit to get to heaven. And if you, most Catholics just say, I'm going to go to purgatory for a while. I've got to suffer some. They have no hope of that at all. Islam, it just depends on what Allah is going to do. One day he might say, okay. Next day he may not. Depends on how much good you think you've done. Whether he's favorable toward you at all. When it comes to Christianity, folks, we are the only ones who have hope. We're it. When I do a funeral, I've done many of them through the years, whenever I go to the gravesite, I always read what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul says to those Thessalonian Christians, he says, I write to you that you would not be ignorant. He doesn't mean ignorant in a bad way. He means without knowledge. He says that you... Who sorrow, you should not sorrow as others who have no hope. The rest of the world has no hope. They see a body in a casket being put in the ground, and that's it. It's over. You and I have the hope, and we need to be able to be ready to give a defense. Because listen, here's the point. If you and I live biblically, and we do what God expects us to do in the midst of persecution... And you're doing the exact opposite of what most people will do in the world. And what I mean by that is this. Whenever, the, whenever they curse you, you bless them. Whenever they do evil to you, you return good to them. Whenever they're hostile toward them, you go out of your way to meet their needs. Whenever you do all of that, you are totally contrary to all the way the world thinks. And I grant you that if you do that, you're going to get the attention of somebody. They're going to wonder, why does that person act like that? 
Why do they do what they do? Why are they so different? And there's the opportunity to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, the gospel of Christ. It's a platform for evangelism. It's a platform to share with them the only means by which they can have eternal life, which is through Christ. Amen? So are you ready? You ready for persecution? You prepared to understand that you'll be blessed if you are, and you are to fear the right kind of person and not to have the kind of fear that the lost have of death. You are to reset, sanctify, set apart, fully devote your hearts and minds to Christ, and then be ready to defend your faith as we approach these very difficult times in the world in which we live. Let's take a moment and pray together, and then I'll turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we want to thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to ask you that you would help us to be faithful. That when, whenever you come, that we would be found faithful. Fully following you. Completely adoring you. With joy in our hearts. As we experience the hostility of the world against Christ. And Lord, that you would even count us worthy to be placed in that position. Help us to honor you with all that we say and all that we do. Help us to prepare our minds and our hearts for this time. Help us also to prepare our children for this time. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking of the Lord's Supper today, I, my attention went to a passage that we're all familiar with in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'd like to read this passage and make a few comments it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. He became sin. In fact, he was punished as if God was punishing us. Our sin, our transgression, all of our sin, all of our transgression was placed on Jesus. And God the Father punished him as if he was punishing us for all of our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. But the other thing is this. Because Jesus came, lived a perfect and righteous life in a physical body, that perfect righteousness that he lived in obedience to the law is imputed to us. So just as much as our sin was given to Jesus and he paid for that, his perfect righteousness is given to us and then we're able to stand in the presence of God with perfect righteousness, not our own, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is a beautiful thing. So in the elements here that we have, the, the juice and the bread, the juice reminds me of the imputation of sin on Christ. And the body, the the bread reminds me of that perfect life that Christ lived in that body for us so that we could have perfect righteousness. 
Mark reminded us earlier that we need to approach this time with obviously respect and reverence because this is something our Lord himself has given to us. It is one of the ordinances in the church that he has given to his church to remember and to declare the death of Jesus till he comes. And in that time, the Bible tells us that we need to always examine ourselves. And we are all still living in fallen flesh, and we all can still sin. And as a result of that, we need daily cleansings from our Lord. We need to go to our Lord and confess our sins to him. And he says he will be faithful to forgive us of all of our sins. So let's take a moment. I'll give you opportunity to pray. Then I'll pray, and then we'll give you the bread and the juice. Let's pray. Father, your servant David, who sinned so horribly with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, cried out on occasion for you to cleanse him, to forgive him of his iniquity, and to create in him a clean heart. And today, Father, we ask the same for our sin. So many times, Lord God, we sin and don't even realize it. We have thoughts that flee through our minds. We have attitudes that come up and we forget to ask for forgiveness for how we've responded or how we've acted or how we've thought. And I pray, God, that you would cleanse our hearts. You would forgive us of our sin. Enable us, Lord, as we celebrate this table you've given to us to remember your sacrifice on our behalf and that we only have access to the Father through the Son. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
that fateful evening that our Lord gathered with his disciples where he would eventually find himself being ushered off to die on a cross, Paul reminds us of it. He tells us this. On the same night in which the Lord himself was betrayed, he took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take this bread which is broken for you and do this in remembrance of me. The same night they did as they customarily would do at Passover, they would share a cup and this cup, of course, would now be different. It wouldn't be the old covenant, it wouldn't be the Passover, it would be the new covenant in his blood that he would shed as a reminder forever for the forgiveness of sins where the wrath of God was poured out on his own son to save us all. And the Bible tells us in the same way that he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. David.